So one day, a true story about Muhammad Ali was that one day he got onto an airplane and he was sitting in first class. This is a true story. And as he was sitting there, the flight attendant came around to do her pre-flight duties and asked him to buckle his seatbelt so that they could take off. And she came back a moment later, and his seatbelt still was not on. And she said, I'm sorry, Mr. Ali, but you are going to have to buckle your seatbelt. Now, she came back another time right before the plane was about ready to start taxiing down the runway, and Ali still had not buckled his seatbelt. She said, Mr. Ali, you, we can't move the plane until you buckle your seatbelt. I'm sure many of us probably heard that from our parents growing up. This car doesn't start until it's buckled. We can't move the airplane until you buckle your seatbelt. And he replied, I don't need to buckle my seatbelt. What do you mean you don't need to buckle your seatbelt, she asked. Everybody has to buckle their seatbelt. And he replied, well... Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> the flight attendant now was ticked off, and she looked squarely at him and said, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> True story. Now, ever since the fall... Ever since Adam and Eve were first tempted, humanity has struggled to recognize their own limitations day in and day out. We have to know that we are inadequate, that we are not enough. Autonomous humans, humans that try to believe that they have everything under control, humans that live without try to live without God who try to reject God's sovereignty that is his rule his control over things that he is in charge trying to reject his sovereignty trying to find a way to salvation without God try to fix the problems of life without God or even try to take a breath of air into their lungs without God will one day be rudely awakened to the reality that they are completely inadequate without him. Whether that is today or in the future, that rude awakening will come. We will always, always depend on the sovereignty of God, even when we think we're Superman. But we like to seek our own way, and we become blinded to our, by our own will to accomplish anything. And that has to be stripped away if we are to be saved. We have to give up control. We have to see our inadequacy, that we are not enough. Just like Ali had to see that he couldn't save himself from a plane crash. Today we're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. And we're going to see the problem of human inadequacy and the solution that is provided in Jesus. 
the problem of human inadequacy and the solution that is provided in Jesus. And we'll do that by first um, reviewing the claims that Jesus has already been making about himself in John that we've seen. We're going to review those claims, and then we'll look at the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Now, if this sounds a little familiar, uh, you might remember that I preached on these same stories back in June from Mark's Gospel. So we've, we've already done this, these stories recently. And what I'm hoping is that we could be reminded of those things, but I want to also make sure that we pick up on the unique things that John is saying about these stories in his gospel, kind of the unique qualities of, of his account. Now, these stories appear in the other gospels, but there are certain things that each author of the gospels tries to bring out. Now, we could think of... The differences between the, the Gospels like a, a gradient color flare. You can see up here on the screen we have some more indigo type blue. And then over there we have some lighter shades. Hopefully you can see that. Um, we have some turquoise. We can think of it like a color gradient. That's all blue, right? It's all blue, but there are unique shades for us to appreciate. The same is true with the Gospels. They're all sharing the same accounts, but with different shades for us to appreciate. Now, we could blend all of the Gospel stories together, do a, a Gospel parallel, uh, and look at the same event across each Gospel, just like here. Um, I think that's changed now. It, it's just all been blended into one shade of blue. Maybe that's harder to see than I expected but I think you guys are hopefully getting the idea. All right. So if we blend them all together, it's still the same event, still the same story, but in doing so, if we don't take them individually, we miss the unique details that each author is bringing to the story. Like with that color gradient, we, we don't see all the unique details shades and that those could be very very important in the gospels and that's because not only did the gospel writers bring unique perspectives on the same events but under the guidance of the holy spirit they are also trying to bring distinct theological points out of the same story they're all seeing very various things that they should have learned in those moments and trying to highlight them. So today we want to see what John is trying to teach us through these events. It will be a, hopefully a little bit different from that last sermon. Now, same story, but with a fresh perspective. Recently in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been making these bold claims about himself. Um, and of course, they were not getting the best responses, if you remember. In John chapter 5, we saw that Jesus was making himself equal with God the Father, which of course was really ticking off the religious leaders. And Pastor Tim has done this excellent job of helping to explain to us the statements that he makes in chapter 5. Like when Jesus says that the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing, it's not a statement saying that Jesus is limited in his deity or that he's less than god that he's some sub god but is actually a statement of equality in power and attributes with the father 
as the rest of chapter 5, verse 19 says, if you remember, he only does what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. In other words, there is equality between Father and Son. There is unity. Unity. He's saying he's not a separate God acting independently because that's the way people were going to interpret what he was claiming. He's not a separate God acting independently from the Father, but he's united in every action with him. And we know that John is writing this gospel with the intent that we would know who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, and that we would believe in him. Who he is is all, not all that important if he is not God, if he is not equal with the Father. Because if he is only human, there is nothing that he could really do for us. And of course, we have no hope of salvation on our own. We need someone who is both fully God and fully man to provide us a way to salvation. Now, we could summarize what he claimed about himself in chapter 5. I want these to be in the back of our, our mind uh, with this list. First, John, or the son, does the same work as the father. Does the same work as the father. Secondly, he has the same knowledge that God possesses. Third, he has the power to raise the dead. Fourth, he has the responsibility to judge. Fifth, he has the right of equal honor with the Father. Number six, he has the ability to give eternal life. And seven, he has the attribute of self-existence. Those are his seven claims about himself that we've already covered in chapter five. All these attributes equal with God the Father, even though he is also fully human. And of course, we have discussed previously that we... When we bring in Philippians chapter 2 here, we have to realize that Paul is not saying that Jesus has abandoned his divine attributes. In fact, Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Scripture says God's deity is unchangeable. Being God, the Son's deity is unchangeable. But as we see here in John and in Philippians, Jesus does not seek independence from the Father. He's not seeking to do his own thing, but he binds himself to his Father's will. He emptied himself not by giving away his deity. Paul tells us the way that he emptied himself, by taking on the form of a servant. Human flesh, by taking on human flesh. Now, in the Greek, that's a participle of means when it says, by taking on. In other words, Paul says, this is how he emptied himself, by taking on our flesh. It's a subtraction by addition of something of lesser value. But here in John, we are seeing that he is claiming for himself. Right then, he already has all of these attributes from that that list right there. He continues to have them. While he is on earth, he is claiming the same qualities of rights, attributes, and authority that the Father has. 
that is what the Greek tenses in that section reveal. He already has them. He still has them. And he will forever have them. Now, this is the mystery of the incarnation. That one man could have two natures. But there is that mystery all the way through our beliefs, isn't there? We believe in one God who exists in three persons. We believe that our scriptures are both from human authors and the, the authorship of the Holy Spirit at the same time. In the same way, the Son of God is one person, but with two natures, being fully sovereign God and limited human being. It's the mystery of the Incarnation. He claims equality with the Father. And so that brings us now, now that we've refreshed that idea of what he's been claiming about himself, that brings us to two events in which John wants us to see some not-so-subtle signs of who Jesus is. That he is sovereign in his power and letting us see that he is indeed equal with the Father, that he has authority, that he has power, that he is sovereign. He is all those things and we are not. That we are inadequate. And Jesus is sovereign. We are inadequate. And Jesus is sovereign. So let's look at two miracles that reveal that. After Jesus has made these claims with, about a, being equal with the Father, in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this is a very important national time for them as a people. This is a very big event, Passover time. And we're going to come back to that in just a little bit here. Now, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, Philip was a local boy. He was from a, a nearby town called Bethsaida. So he was the obvious one to, to give this test to, to see what he, his response would be. Now, as we go through John, we're going to begin to notice something about Philip. He tends to not turn to Jesus when the problems become too difficult. He tries to be self-sufficient. He tries to find the answer in himself. He's, fix it, Phil. Sorry, Phil, I hope that doesn't stick with you. He's, fix it, Phil. Not that Phil, this Phil. And in this circumstance, he can't find a way to do it himself. He wants to fix it. The text says that there were 5,000 men there. Now, that's just the men being recorded. That's the common way to record how, how big a crowd was. And that doesn't include the women and the children in the count. 
women and children included, there were probably 12 to 18,000 people there all together. Jesus is asking him if he knows how to take care of this massive group of people. But Philip's response perhaps shows a little bit of, of snark towards Jesus' request. Like, come on, seriously? Look at this crowd. If they had half a year's wages, then they could help these people. But think about this. The one who has just claimed equal authority with God the Father is sitting there asking Philip what the solution to this big problem is. He's testing him. But ironically, ironically, even though he's sitting, standing there looking right at Jesus, the sovereign ruler of the universe, the man who is claiming to be the almighty sovereign of all things, equal with the Father, he's failing to see that he needs to look to Jesus for the answer to this problem. He's failing to see that he's inadequate and that Jesus is sovereign. He isn't having faith that Jesus can do all that they've already been seeing him do as they've been following him around. Now, one of his disciples, verse 8 says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, and what? but what are they for so many? Andrew also is not seeing the solution, even though Jesus is right there. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted Five loaves, two fish, and twelve to 18,000 people fed and satisfied by the bountiful, sovereign hand of Jesus, the Messiah, the greatest provider. You would hope it was starting to sink in for them. And not only that extraordinary fact, but continuing on in verses 12 and 13, Jesus tells his disciples to gather the leftovers. He didn't want anything to be wasted, even though everyone had already been sufficiently full. And as they did, they gathered 12 baskets of leftover bread. 12 baskets of leftover bread, and we shouldn't miss this. Not only does Jesus provide for everybody there, he gives his followers more than they could even need. He provides more for his disciples than they could even need. When they are inadequate, when they don't have the solution to the problem, when they don't have enough on their own, He, in his sovereignty, can provide more than they need. The disciples are inadequate. Jesus is sovereign. The disciples are inadequate. Jesus is sovereign. Now, as we've noted, this is 
taken place when it was nearly the Passover celebration. So all of Israel during this time, you can imagine, is reflecting on God's deliverance of their people out of the land of Egypt. That's what they remember during this time. And, of course, they are living during this difficult political time once again as they are under the rule of Rome. And here comes this man who performs this massive, massive miracle, feeding twelve to 18,000 people, which, as far as size goes, this is the biggest of his miracles, quantity-wise. And all of the country was certainly probably starting to take notice. And I'm sure they couldn't help during this time but make a connection to God providing for Israel in the desert through manna. I'm sure that was probably one of the first things that they thought about. And that makes sense when we come to verse 14, and it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So um, they are hoping that this is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, where Moses promised that a prophet like him would one day come. They are looking for this, and they're, they're seeing this connection between the manna in the Old Testament with Moses, and now there's this guy providing. They're looking at this amazing thing he's done, and they're remembering that what God did through Moses in the past. But they're focusing on the provision of physical bread and political power. Now, it's important to know that John is writing his gospel partly to combat what we call the early stages of Gnosticism. It's this false teaching that everything physical in the world is bad and that only the spiritual things are good. John's writing writing to combat that. And John isn't saying, he doesn't say that the people are wrong, that he is the promised prophet. And he doesn't say that they are wrong to note that Jesus can take care of their physical needs. He can take care of our physical needs, can't he? But the problem is that they stop there. They stop at the physical Just like with Nicodemus, John isn't denying that the Messiah will one day take everything, um, everything in the world and, and make it right one day. Make everything right in the physical world. But if you remember Nicodemus's problem all those weeks ago when we covered it, he didn't realize that the Messiah needed to come first to save us spiritually and that he would come again to set everything right in the world. They're not seeing that. They want it all to happen right away. They don't recognize their spiritual need for salvation now, which is why he came the first time. This crowd knows the promises of deliverance and plenty that the Messiah, the great prophet, would bring, but they're stopping short of recognizing their need for spiritual bread. And next week, I don't want to tread in that direction too much, because next week 
Tim will take some time and talk through the rest of John chapter 6 and talk about our need for spiritual bread. Now through this act, we see that both the disciples and the crowd are inadequate. They don't even recognize their own spiritual inadequacy. But we see that Jesus is sovereign. He is more than capable of meeting any need that they have. The disciples are inadequate. Jesus is sovereign. Now the story continues on and we find out that while Jesus went away by himself, the disciples climbed into the boat and started to sail across the sea by themselves. Now any time in the Gospels that the disciples start to climb into a boat by themselves, the response should be, uh-oh. Anytime they're in a boat, even if Jesus is with them, it's an uh-oh because it's test time. And uh, as they start to cross, John notes that they're alone. Jesus is not there. That's a double uh-oh. Verse 18 says, the, same, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, in Hebrew culture, sea storms evoke a certain imagery and symbolism. The sea often represents the chaos of evil in the world. And now they've just seen him do this incredible, massive miracle where he's shown his power and his sovereignty not so subtly. It showed the disciples that they were inadequate to provide in difficult situations. And now sign number two, that was sign number one. Sign number two is going to show that they are inadequate in the face of chaos and uncertainty. They are not enough. And in both circumstances, the solution to their inadequacy is the same. Jesus is sovereign. Verse 19 says, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, we need to make note of an Old Testament theme here. Um, We all know that it's miraculous for Christ to be walking on the water. Uh, But what we may not realize is that the Old Testament, in Job and in a few other places, it teaches that only God can walk upon the waters. Job 9.8 says that God alone can trample the waves of the sea. God alone can trample the waves of the sea. He could exercise his full sovereignty and control over evil and over the elements. In the face of evil and chaos, the disciples are inadequate. It's Jesus who could trample the waves of the sea because he is sovereign over them. Next verse, but he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, John does something unique with his retelling of the story here. He cuts out a lot of the focus on the disciples. We find a lot more focus on the other disciples and the the other gospels, and that's not a bad thing. We need to hear about their part of the story too. But what John does here, What I think is going on is that he clips it down to the essentials of the story as he's he's reflecting on it. 
so that we would be focused almost completely on who Jesus is in this moment. He's honing in on Jesus. Just straightforward focus on one thing. Jesus is sovereign. The disciples are inadequate. In the face of chaos and evil, all that they could do is fear. They don't have any control. But Jesus comes to them doing what Job says that only God can do, trampling the waves of the sea. And when they see him, and they still fail to recognize who he is, he comforts them, saying in Greek, Ego, a me, it is I. Now I think we're supposed to pick up on another hint in that statement here. The, great, the Greek phrase, Ego, a me, that theme will become more and more clear in John as we continue on, as Jesus starts to use that phrase in his teaching to call himself the I Am. The I Am, the covenant name of God. Jehovah, identifying himself with God. In the moment, you know, maybe young John didn't make that connection as Jesus is saying that. Maybe he just thought, Jesus was saying, it's me, because it also means that. But I can imagine that as John grew in his understanding of Jesus, and he looked back at this event, and saw in that, he probably saw in that statement, Jesus revealing who he was. Revealing his sovereignty. Revealing himself as the I Am who led the people out of Egypt through the sea. And now here he is walking on the sea, saying, it is I. Seeing that just as Jehovah delivered Israel through his sovereignty from Egypt, feeding them with manna, dividing the sea, so here we see Jesus pictured as the sovereign deliverer of all people again. He's feeding them bread just like with the manna and he's making a way for his followers through the sea in not so subtle ways he's revealed who he is the sovereign i am he can miraculously multiply food he can give us more than we need he can do what only god can do trampling the ways of the sea showing his sovereignty over the elements, over chaos, over uncertainty. He is the hope for all their needs. He is the hope for all of our needs. The disciples are inadequate, but Jesus is sovereign. Um, the, the preacher Chuck Swindoll once said that he was invited to speak at an event put on uh, by people who were involved in 12-step programs like Alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous. And as he was at the event he, and he talked with the attendees and thought about what he was going to say to them, he finally came up with an, an ironic title to his sermon. The title was, Why I Wish I Was an Alcoholic. Good old Chuck. Why I Wish I Was an Alcoholic. Uh, He said, it occurred to me that what recovering alcoholics confess every day, every day, is personal failure and the daily need 
for grace and help from friends. This represents high hurdles for those of us who take pride in our independence and our self-sufficiency for all of us who are fix-it fills. I hope today that you, like a recovering alcoholic, recognize your own inadequacy, just like the disciples were supposed to get. That on your own, you are weak, you are unable. Now, we're often more than aware of our physical inadequacies, a lot more than our spiritual inadequacies. But both are true. Like Muhammad Ali on that plane, we can slip into thinking that we can take care of ourselves, that we can keep everything under control. Unfortunately, it could take a complete loss of control for us to realize that we don't have any in the first place. Not only could the disciples not take care of the physical needs of themselves or that crowd, it would have been entirely impossible for them to serve others like Jesus was asking him to. It was impossible for them to serve as well. But they didn't recognize their spiritual need either. If we can't even guarantee our own physical safety, our own physical needs, there is no way we can ever guarantee our own spiritual salvation either. There is only one person who is sovereign and capable of that, Jesus Christ. And if we are still trying to be a fix-it fill and make our own way to heaven, to perfection, to salvation, realize, realize that you are no more capable of living up to God's perfect standards than you are able to feed 12 to 18,000 people with five loaves and two fish. You are inadequate Jesus is not. You are inadequate. Jesus is not. But here's my fear for some of us who sit here today. I fear that you may understand that completely. You understand that you are inadequate to be justified in and of yourself before God. I fear that you understand that you are indeed trusting, needed to trust in him completely to save you. But now that you are a believer, you think you are more than capable of handling this thing that we call sanctification on your own. Growing in our faith. We can believe that Jesus is the only way to be justified, but then slip into self-righteous, self-righteousness game as we look at the inadequacy that we see in other Christians while blinded to our own inadequacy. Uh, Pastor Paul David Tripp warns about this in one of his books, saying, people who think of themselves as righteous tend to expect and require of others the same righteousness that they think they have achieved. Rather than being the soil in which 
grace grows, arrival is the soil in which unrealistic expectations, criticisms, impatience, and harsh judgments grow. If you think you are keeping the law, then you are comfortable with throwing the law at others. But if you are grieved at the reality that you daily fall woefully short of God's requirement that your that your rest is not in your own righteousness but in the righteousness of Christ then you will naturally minister to others the same grace that you so desperately need and so graciously receive from God's hand spiritual growth sanctification grows in the soil of grace not in our own self-sufficiency not in arrival it grows if you want to grow in your faith learn to love grace day in and day out to recognize how woefully desperately inadequate you are without the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ Pride could blind us from our own shortcomings in the life in the life of sanctification. You are even inadequate in your sanctification. Now that doesn't mean we don't try. We see this in Scripture. But even when when Scripture tells us that we need to try, that we need to work out our salvation, it says that it's because it's God who's at work in us. Because on our own we are inadequate. Have an accurate estimation of yourself. You're still someone who needs God's grace day by day by day. For your salvation, for your sanctification, for your physical needs, for serving the needs of others. You are inadequate, but Jesus is sovereign. When Jesus asked Philip to serve the needs of the crowd, he failed to recognize his own limitation and rely on the sovereignty of Jesus sitting right there in front of him. There's a large world out there, and they have a lot of need. There are a lot of problems that you cannot fix, physical and spiritual problems. But the one who sends you out into the world is sovereign. Don't let your circumstances and the shortcomings that you have limit you from being used by Christ to love your neighbor, to make a difference in their lives and partake of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Get out there. No matter where you are in life, whether you're young or you're old, whether you're inexperienced or you're too busy, and love your neighbor. Just take time to get to know them. Of course, there are going to be problems that are larger than you can handle, just like they were for Fix-It Phil. But you aren't the solution anyway are you? Jesus is sovereign. And pray and seek how God can use you to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Become a globally minded Christian. The task is big. You're one person and you are inadequate. But Jesus, 
but Jesus is sovereign. This time, we're going to partake of communion together. And uh, we're going to take time to reflect on the salvation that Jesus provides us in his death and in his resurrection. Now, partaking of this bread and juice that represent his body and his blood that he sacrificed for us, when we do this together, we are admitting that we are inadequate and that he is sovereign. When we partake of this, we are admitting that we are inadequate and that Jesus is sovereign. And if you are trusting in him as your Lord and Savior, then this is something for you to partake in whether or not you call our church home. Now, Paul reminds us in the book of Corinthians that we need to take time to examine ourselves and uh, before we partake of this act. So this is what I want to ask of us. Ask yourself as you wait and as you hold these elements in your hands, ask yourself in your spiritual growth, in your sanctification, are we seeing that we are inadequate and that we still need his sovereign grace day by day? Because this act, make, this, this act what we do here, it makes no sense if you think you've already arrived. Because it's an admission that you still need the gospel. It's an acknowledgement that we still need him, that we are inadequate, and Jesus provides sovereign grace. I'm going to pray, and uh, after I'm done, the ushers will come up, and the, the band's going to play us some instrumental music so we could have some time to reflect. And I'll give us further instructions Um, in a moment. Until then, just wait. They'll bring it to you. Reflect on your own inadequacy before the Father and thank Him for the sovereign grace of His Son. Father, I thank You for this reminder from the Gospel of John, seeing in these events this not-so-subtle hints of who Your Son is, that He is more than enough, that He is sovereign to meet every need we have. And Lord, Forgive us for the many, many times that we fail to see our own inadequacy. Teach us, help us to understand that we need to rely on him day by day by day for our own salvation, for our own spiritual growth, for meeting the needs of others, for loving our neighbor, for reaching the world. We are in desperate need because we are inadequate and your son is sovereign. Help us to change our hearts in this moment. And thank you for the provision that we have in him. Amen.